Welcome uh, to another interview held by EFSAS. This time we have as our guest, uh, Myra McDonald. Uh, Myra, welcome. Good morning. Uh, Myra is a, a former journalist and was bureau chief of Reuters in India. Uh, you currently live in Edinburgh and um, you're the author of three books on contemporary South Asian security, all with a strong focus on Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, the first book, Heights of Madness covers the Siachen War between India and Pakistan. Uh, your second book, Defeat is an Orphan, looks at how the relationship changed between India and Pakistan after the nuclear tests in 1998. And your latest book, uh, which I have here, White as the Shroud, covers the conflict on the frontiers of Jammu and Kashmir, both between India and Pakistan on the line of control and between India and China on the line of actual control. And um, well, th these are very interesting subjects, of course, but first of all, what would be very interesting to know is, you know, you're from Edinburgh, from Scotland, um, how you're a journalist, you were, of course, bureau chief of Reuters in India, but, you know, there are many things happening in India. Uh, wh why this big focus um, on, 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 on the issue of Jammu and Kashmir, but also India, Pakistan, China relations. Uh, how did that come about? Um, well, I suppose to start, I went, when I went to India as bureau chief, that was in 2000, 2000 actually, the beginning of 2000. And um, yeah, obviously there, there were huge stories all across India. And I remember when I first arrived there saying to somebody, explaining because we had bureaus all over the country and explaining that I was in charge of India and this chap said to me my dear not even the prime minister is in charge of India so uh, that was a very early introduction to the notion that it was going to be extremely difficult to make sense of every single story in India mm. but then by as it happened if you remember in 2001 India and Pakistan very nearly went to war um, over the attack on the Indian parliament in December, 2001. And I mean, in many ways, I was absolutely fascinated living at the, the heart of that story um, because that went, that was a, a six month rolling crisis. It was particularly interesting being in Reuters at the time because um, most communication lines were snapped between India and Pakistan during that crisis. Whereas we were one of the few to have back then our own internal systems for being able to talk, same, you know, instant messaging, but way back, mm. being able to chat constantly with my colleagues in Pakistan and, and getting the sense of the story from both sides. So I think from that moment onwards, I was particularly interested in the, in the Kashmir story. Uh, I also, um, as it happened, one of our um, staffers in Kashmir got, got injured a couple of times. Uh, and as the bureau chief, I was obviously obliged to go to Kashmir to make sure he was all right or simply to fly the flag because, you know, that's the sort of thing you have to take a great deal of care over when you've got local staffers being, being hurt or, or whatever. Uh, so that also kind of got me involved in the Kashmir story. And then finally, I suppose... Being from Scotland, obviously, I love mountains, and uh, the most, to me, the most beautiful part of the world is either 
either the west of Scotland or the mountains of Kashmir. So this was a great, not only was it fascinating politically, but um, it was also a fabulous um, story to cover from a sort of, from the, 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 the scenery aspect, that sort of whole sense of, um, yeah, just how incredibly beautiful it is. And, and I think one last point I would make, which I think is important, is um, I'm also, and I always have been wherever I've worked, I'm interested in how things look from the periphery. I think we have a tendency as journalists, because we're so busy, to focus on the capital city. Um, but because I am originally from Scotland and now live in Scotland, uh, I've always had this idea that you need to get out into the periphery, talk to people living on the periphery and see how it looks from their perspective, from the outside looking in towards the capital, rather than the capital city looking out towards the periphery. Um, and I make an argument in my most recent book um, that this is, this is more than simply talking to the people, although it's something I believe is important, but actually understanding the way in which the periphery itself influences the policies and the decisions at the centre um, so it's not simply a question of the centre handing out or um, judgments or policies out towards the periphery, but in turn, whatever is happening on the periphery then affects the way national governments react. Mm. So that's in brief a summary of how I got to where I got to. Uh, and that was, I guess, I could say that was. Um, I mean, that started more than more than two decades ago. So. I'm by nature a specialist, and so the more I have built my understanding, the more I have been inclined to continue with it because you have to learn so much and and you know to take on a a new subject now would be another twenty years of research to start actually understanding it properly so um, and was it like you described uh, this was just a few years after the nuclear tests, and it was uh, just a few months after the parliament attack, um, was it difficult to, to work in that, uh, in that environment? Um, actually, no, it was probably easier to work then um, in that environment than it is now. Uh, um, it used to be very easy for Western journalists to go to Kashmir. Uh, you could go to the valley, you simply needed to sign a piece of paper at the airport, there was, weren't real restrictions on you. Obviously the big restrictions were on getting near to the line of control or the line of actual control, but in terms of going in and out of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, both to the valley and to Ladakh, that used to be much, much easier. Um, the difficulty in fact was on the Pakistan side where for Westerners, it always has been much, much more uh, restricted um, for Westerners to go in and out of, of their side of, uh, of, of Kashmir. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately now on the Indian side, it's become more difficult to, uh, to, to, to operate that way. You actually write about this. You actually call yourself naive. Because in 2004, you tried to get a visa through the official channels um, in, 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 uh, in Delhi, a visa for Pakistan. And um, you ended up 
being offered uh, tea and cigarettes and and whatnot at the at the high commission in um, in in New Delhi, uh, but you didn't get a visa and on your own as you as you write here you decided to just um instead of taking a bureaucratic route you decided to just email the pakistani army uh yes no exactly i mean i i you know i mean particularly with my writer's background i prefer to do everything above board and to do things officially and clearly i don't like to go around things but um but uh, I did have to, ex- it, it, it was particularly difficult being based in India to get a visa just to go to Pakistan. And, and at that point, I only wanted to go to Islamabad and uh, make some preliminary inquiries. But even then, I ended up having to go to the army to get, explain that I was interested in the Siachen War to then get them to tell the embassy to issue me a visa um, so that I could get there. So that was certainly difficult. Uh, the other thing, of course, that's extremely difficult for, uh, for especially for foreigners to do, is to get to either the line of control or the line of actual control. Uh, in my case, I wanted to go to um, Siachen, and I was very committed to the notion that I had to go to both the Indian and the Pakistani sides of of the Siachen battlefield. Um, Again, that's again. I keep stressing the Reuters background, but we have a very strict rules about you have to always make sure that you you get both sides of the story. Uh, that doesn't mean both sides are equally balanced, but you really do have to make the effort. It took me months and months uh, on both sides, actually, first to persuade the Indian army to let me go to Siachen, and then secondly to persuade the Pakistan army to let me go. Uh, and I, the one benefit I think I have is that I'm one of the very few uh, to have actually been to both sides. So um, the, the writing I've done about it is, is, is really amongst the very few that you can find that tries to, tries to give um, the view from both the Indian and the Pakistani side. Uh, so... And, and, and you also try to, maybe not so much in this book, but in the others as well, you also try to give it, a, you also try to input a third view, which is uh, of the people um, of, of, of Kashmir. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, um, and, and again, I try and make the point that even that is not straightforward because, you know, you have one view in the Kashmir Valley, you have a different view in Ladakh. Uh, I mean, to row back for anyone who doesn't follow as closely as we do, um, I should just be clear that uh, the former princely state of Jammu and Kashmir is made up of uh, uh, the Kashmir Valley on the Indian side, Ladakh and Jammu, and on the Pakistan side, um, there is what Pakistan calls Azad Kashmir, and Gilgit Baltistan. Uh, and I've always been fascinated, per- partly because I'd done some work in Ladakh as well. I've always been interested in looking at the way in which views are different depending on which of those different parts of the former princely state of Jammu and Kashmir comes from. So 
the valley obviously is the most heavily populated it's the one that's best known uh but it's not the only place where you have to go in order to try and understand the 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 the, the complexity of that you know it's like peeling an onion the complexity of that conflict you also actually call in your book the two most important parts of the you know, erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir are Ladakh and Gilgit Baltistan. No, that, yeah, that, that, that was a discovery for me, really, because that's obviously not what I thought when I first rolled up in India. But from a strategic point of view, uh, Ladakh and Gilgit Baltistan are actually, I would say, more important. Uh, they're much, much bigger. Uh, Ladakh is is what runs into the uh, the border with China uh, on on the Indian side, or the line of actual control with with China, I should call it. On the Pakistan side, Gilgit Baltistan is what is is their border with China. Uh, you need to go through Gilgit Baltistan for the main the main Karakoram Highway linking, uh, which is the main road linking Pakistan to China. Uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, going from uh, linking Western China to Pakistan, also has to go through Gilgit-Baltistan. So in, in a modern-day context, these are absolutely fundamental, crucial, strategic states uh, for both India and Pakistan, which is one of the layers that makes this conflict incredibly difficult. And and I think probably worth adding, because I did try and trace back some of the history going back into the, the 19th century. I mean, these were also, um, as I, I hate to use the great game because it's such a cliche, but this entire area was the, the area, the, the area now covered by Ladakh and Gilgit Baltistan was the area that concerned, most concerned the British when... Mm -hmm they at the time were concerned about the encroachment of uh, Tsarist Russia into Central Asia and their fear that it could be a threat to then Imperial British India. So historically and in the present day, uh, these two, Ladakh and Gilgit-Baltistan have been massively important strategically. Uh, to some extent, the Kashmir Valley has been the people of the Kashmir Valley have been caught up in that, uh, uh, not through any will of their own, but they have in fact got got trapped in that. Uh, so again, it's where I'd say, you know, as I said at the beginning, it's interesting the way the periphery affects the center, because if you would consider theoretically uh, Srinagar is the capital of, of the valley. Um, if you would consider Srinagar as being the center in the case of Jammu and Kashmir, actually the, 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 it has in turn been influenced by these peripheral remote borders uh, uh, between Pakistan and China on one hand and Ladakh and China on the other. Uh, and these borders, I, for those who don't know, the, the, these are borders right way high up, high up in the in the Karakoram. Uh, 
glaciated, un, often on, on very sparsely inhabited, high cold deserts. If this is right up on the on the edge of the Tibetan plateau, so it, it's it's as peripheral as you can get, really, and yet has had an enormous influence on the the nature of the conflict. And and it, and of course, it doesn't help that both these um, peripheries. Uh, also, actually, where they, you know, uh, the link between China is also to Chinese territory, which is also not very clear. One on one hand is Xinjiang, and on the other hand, you have Tibet. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what you have is is so you have a big strategic competition or a three-way triangle between India, China, and Pakistan. But within that, you also have these internal uh, tensions or conflicts, whatever you choose to call them. So for China, yes, it's it, its Western periphery is extremely sensitive. It's uh, you have the issue around Tibet, you have um, the tensions in Xinjiang. So you, in a way, as I as I it is kind of like a sort of uh, well, many, many wheels within a much bigger wheel because you have all these little spinning wheels of, of local localized conflicts or localized contestation for power mm. um, wrapped within this much, much bigger uh, conflict between or triangle between India, Pakistan and China. And then on top of that, um, which we've now seen recently, is... Um, is the sort of increasing tension between the United States and China. So there are, there are multiple, multiple layers to this. You, you actually describe this when, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about the Jammu and Kashmir conflict, you actually, you, you, you call out like three, uh, yeah, three basic fundaments of this larger conflict between India, Pakistan, China, and then also geopolitical. You mentioned the first one, which is ideological. Um, then you talk about strategic, uh, geopolitical, and then indeed localized. So coming to the first one, ideological, um, you said this conflict is ideological and it's much more ideological for Pakistan than it is for India. Uh, how do you... Explain that. Uh, yeah, and that was that was particularly true. I, I I wonder whether that's becoming less true now. But maybe I'll wind back. First of all, is that I mean, if you go right back to the beginning, um, or go back to partition in 1947, uh, Pakistan very definitely identified itself as a homeland for uh, the Muslims of of, of the subcontinent. Um, and as such, because Pakistan sees itself as the homeland for Muslims, then it it, it took for granted that uh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir, which had a Muslim majority, should belong automatically to Pakistan. Uh, India, obviously, at the time, was determinedly secular and refused to acknowledge that, or or, or disagreed with the notion that. Uh, the fate of the former princely state of Jammu and Kashmir should be determined by religion. So it's been asymmetric from the start in that uh, you're not 
or you, you weren't talking about a conflict between a Muslim Pakistan and a Hindu India. You were talking about a conflict between a Muslim Pakistan and a secular India that 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 projected itself as having space for both Hindus and Muslims in the subcontinent. Uh, that ideology, I think, has been has been um, particularly damaging for Pakistan uh, in the sense that because Pak because of the way Pakistan identifies itself, it hasn't been able to give up on Kashmir because if it were to give up on Kashmir, it's giving up its very raison d'être. So it has to maintain this 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 claim to Kashmir. Um, which has in fact been very, very damaging to Pakistan uh, in that in all the years it, it, it has fought to try and one way or another to, to gain control of the Kashmir Valley, including by supporting uh, hardline uh, fundamentalist jihadis. That has itself eroded Pakistan from within. It's meant it's very top heavy. It's dominated by the military. It's been, you know, back in 1947, Pakistan thought it was going to be a better and more equal place than India. Uh, and uh, yeah, this kind of shining beacon of, 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 uh, um, of a sort of Muslim republic. Uh, and, uh, you know, over the years we've seen, and particularly the years I tracked in my book, defeat as an orphan, uh, Pakistan has actually become weaker and weaker than India. Uh, you know, it's it's always worth remembering for people who are, um, you know, not of a younger generation, Pakistan used to be richer per capita than, than India. Uh, uh, you, you, something like that. Sorry? Yeah, around the 60s, early 70s even. Well, even though, I mean, the, the difference in per capita income, um, Pakistan had a higher per capita income than India right up to 2009. Hmm. So it's remarkably recent that um, Pakistan has fallen further and further behind India. And India obviously is, is now accelerating in terms of its economic growth to the point that, unlike when I was writing, uh, it, my books, it's, 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 the two are less and less put in the same bracket. One is a, is a very, very much struggling developing country with it, you know, its economy is in a mess, uh, massive debt, whereas India is widely seen as, uh, well, a vast developing economy with it that's trying to, uh, you know, with both economic and diplomatic clout on the world stage. So where up till... Um, I'd say maybe five, seven years ago, you could talk about those two countries and make comparisons. It's becoming almost more and more absurd to do so. Um, is there, is there, because in, in your book, where you, where you talk about this, there also comes across a little bit of frustration from, from your side as, a, as not only an analyst, but also as a human being. Um, that uh, this is all for everyone to see. And you say um, in your book that uh, many times um, victimhood was used by your Pakistani interlocutors. And then, you know, but paradoxically, 
uh, also the fact that we are the only Muslim country with 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 a uh, with a nuclear bomb. Um, is it was it frustrating to see all this and then you know tell your friends in Pakistan that you'll need to change in order to grow, and they, you know, one is they knowing it and accepting it, but then refusing to do it. Um. Yeah, I mean, you'll certainly hear a lot of people inside Pakistan being as as frustrated as me with the way things have gone, um, if not more frustrated because they're directly personally affected. Whereas I don't, I don't live in Pakistan, so uh, my frustration is is more from a distance. Uh, I think my biggest frustration, and I don't know if you want to come on to this, is, is the, the the peace talks uh, between India and Pakistan um, that uh, began around 2003. Um, and so it was then under um, uh, then <clears throat> President Pervez Musharraf and initially Prime Minister Vajpayee and then in India, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. Those peace talks came on, on Jammu and Kashmir, reached a draft agreement that was probably the best possible deal you could have had on, on Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, it essentially agreed that there would be no exchange of territory but they, they would try and make the line of control irrelevant and, and they would give max, a maximum autonomy to all, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, all parts of Jammu and Kashmir, both the Valley, Gilgit, Baltistan, <coughs> and so on. Um, so, I mean, that really was the best it was ever going to be. I thought it was hopeful and a potentially dynamic agreement because to loop back on something I said before, I think it's very important to remember that people don't think the same in every different part of Jammu and Kashmir. They have different histories, different geographies, uh, different languages. Um, so one of the things that I thought was particularly helpful about the notion of they were going to try and open up travel across the line of control, open up trade, open up communication links, uh, is that one way of unlocking that conflict is to get the people from the different parts to start speaking to each other rather than assuming everybody thinks the same. So um, I was, and, and I'm incredibly frustrated and disappointed that that, that agreement failed. Uh, part of the reason why, why it failed. Why did it fail? Why did it fail according to you? Right, okay. Um, there's three reasons. Uh, one is, uh, and I think it's only fair to say this, but I don't think this is the fundamental reason, but India was slow in in pushing ahead with it. Uh, it slightly dragged its, dragged its heels uh, for political reasons inside India. Uh, the uh, second reason, and I think probably the more important one, is that... Uh, Musharraf was very much uh, kind of his own man there and he was acting on his own initiative. He made no effort to get uh, support across Pakistan or from key stakeholders in Pakistan for that agreement. Uh, 
And so it actually couldn't survive. Once Musharraf was pushed out of office, it couldn't survive without him. Uh, it was, I mean, it's a small detail, but it's important if you follow it closely. The, the um, Pakistan People's Party, um, which came into government after uh, Musharraf was ousted, actually repudiated the agreement, uh, which actually, to my mind, was totally against the, the, the civilian government's interest. Because if the civilian government wants to attain democracy, a proper democracy in Pakistan, then they have to find a peace settlement with India that means the army no longer has such such power over Pakistan. And yet the um, the the PPP also failed to move forward with that agreement. Uh, then, and I would say this is really important to remember is. 2008, the the Mumbai attacks. Uh, <coughs> I did. <coughs> I think in one of my books, I've done a whole chapter on the Mumbai attacks. There is no doubt in my mind that that could not have happened without the complicity of the uh, Pakistan intelligence agencies. It was a huge operation to uh, to manage. You have to have people go by boat from Karachi to Mumbai. The logistics backup. Uh, this was, uh, although it, uh, despite attempts at deniability, I think it is fair enough to say this was an act of war. Um, it was also a horrendous attack from a human perspective. Uh, 166 people were killed. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I think is important to remember about those attacks is, I mean, there were large numbers of victims in the railway station, these are these are ordinary Indians, often relatively poor, and certainly not rich, um, going about their business in the railway station, and they're killed for for no reason. I mean, we we tend to um, obviously the Western media will focus on the big targets like the the, the, the Taj Hotel because that that was iconic, but. I've never really seen a reflection inside Pakistan. I'm not talking about the army or whatever here. I'm talking about in terms of ordinary people is just, you know, like go and watch those videos of, of, of people, people who lost relatives in the railway station. Sometimes they were the main breadwinner and the, 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 the dreadfulness of the human toll of that attack. Uh, and, Again, so I would like to have seen some kind of, rather than a straight out denial, uh, or actually, to be fair to Pakistan, there was not a straight out denial. Some of the newspapers very bravely tried to, um, you know, track down what happened. And I, I mean, there are certainly very, very brave journalists in Pakistan operating in extremely difficult conditions. But... I think to me what I saw happening afterwards <coughs> was a sense of, well, look, that's happened. Let's put this behind us. Now let's move on to the next thing rather than we have to work out why this happened um, and actually genuinely show some kind of, um, at a human level, contrition. And I didn't see that happening. Um, but, but do you then maybe also think because it happens so much and you, you count this as one of the most important reasons uh, why these peace talk uh, failed? Do you think 
and you say that you know it's it's undeniable that the Pakistani intelligence agencies were involved. Do you think this was actually done to to make the peace talks fail? Um, no, because I don't. Not necessarily. No, because I don't think they. Uh, I don't think anything works as <coughs> as simply as that. I don't think they particularly believed in the um, in the peace talks anyway. Mm. Uh, and it's fair enough to say that the at that point the talks were flagging. Uh, there is a range of theories around it, one of which is that um, uh, the, it, it started really with the Pakistan, Pakistani intelligence thinking they needed to occupy, they have, and this has been a long-running problem, is they have these restless, restless jihadis, I mean, who are kind of rebels without a cause and they don't really know what to do with them. Uh, during the period of those peace talks, um, Musharraf had actually reined them in quite a bit and stopped them going into into the valley. Um, so what you had was was these jihadis building up a bit like a pressure cooker, <clears throat> and uh, there is a, a reasonable evidence to suggest that they started off with what they planned as a relatively small scale attack uh, on very specific targets in Mumbai that were meant to send a message uh, and provide something to or keep the jihadis happy. Mm. Uh, it's, oh, excuse me. Uh, the, um, but I mean, uh, and again, these things can't be controlled. I mean, I, I, you know, when I say there's no way it could have happened without Pakistani intelligence agencies knowing about it, I I don't think so. They have they have <coughs> they have the means to try and stop these things happening. I don't think they control them as well as India thinks they do. I think it's once you start doing a terrorist attack, you're doing everything. You know, it's not tracked. Uh, it's none of this is above board. Once you start planning something like that, it, it, it escalates in ways that nobody can really predict. Um, it's like a war. I'm sorry? It's like a war. Exactly, just like a war. Uh, I mean, as far as I can make out, uh, the, the original reason for being in the railway station is they hadn't initially intended for the attack in Mumbai to be a suicide attack, so they had initially considered going to the railway station to use that as a means of escape. And and then what happened was they ended up going to the railway station and killing people. They abandoned the escape plan, but the station remained on the target list. And, and exactly as you say, just like war, it's like you have a bunch of men running around with guns and bombs, uh, then people get killed. Do you think the same happened? Um... Because you also talk about, and then your focus has been in the three books on, on Kashmir. So do you think the same happened to this? Uh, you, you talk about the uh, the terrorism, insurgency, militancy, however you call it in particularly the valley. Do you think the same happened to that that thing in the valley that it eventually went out of control and it went places where it was not intended to go? There came up 
you know, at one point in time, there were around 155 um, armed organizations, um, many of them um, looking for, an, this is before ISIS, looking for an Islamic uh, caliphate thing in, in Kashmir, many of them looking for accession to Pakistan, and even some looking for an independent Kashmir. Um, when they started this thing in, in, in the valley, do you think it had the same thing that it suddenly was not controllable anymore? Um, no, the whole question of control, as you know, is incredibly context contested. I, I certainly think the Pakistan army can raise or lower the temperature. Uh, so it's not completely out of control. And clearly, Musharraf did lower the temperature in the period between around 2002, 2003 and 2008. Uh, but within the valley, yes, it most certainly did go out of control because there are so many other factors that come into play. Uh, again, when you have a bunch of different, mostly men running around with guns, I mean, you had, uh, you had money involved, you had the settling of personal scores, uh, you had one group trying to achieve dominance over the other um, you're always going to get more uh, if you're a, if you're a terrorist group you need followers uh, so you need to do stuff that attracts followers to you um, and I mean one thing I find it, I haven't been there for a while but I used to find very interesting is you you would just look at even just one person killed and talk to various people about why they were killed um, and who killed them, and you would get a million different theories because because there are so many layers involved. And of course, we know that um, India as well is not just talking about uh, the militants here. I mean, India armed its own men to try and go after the militants, and those men in turn um, were not particularly well supervised by India, and they had their own scores to settle. So, do you, uh, do you think that? That has been, because, you know, you're one of the very few who keeps referring to Kashmir and then keeps explaining also that you're talking about its entirety, the Eswar princely state of Kashmir. Do you think that this particular facet of the conflict, which is terrorism, militancy, whatever you call it, that this was, you know, this has put any idea of this Eswar state of Jammu and Kashmir, apart from the strategic and geopolitical considerations, that has made, that this particular facet has made any idea of an erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir being united, coming together at some point of time, whether that's, you know, under the administration of an India, Pakistan, China, or, or separate, uh, that this facet has really made that idea absolutely utopian? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I mean, I'd, I'd nearly go as far as to say it, it really doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, particularly since um, the Modi government in India um, not only abrogated Article 370, which over the autonomy of Jammu and Kashmir, but it also split up uh, Kashmir from Ladakh. So. It for has the, for the reasons that you were saying in the beginning, the geopolitical reasons regarding yeah, China. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 
so if you you know to go back i mean the, the former princely state of jammu and kashmir is um was was separated between india and pakistan in 1947 48 uh it's pakistan has always handled what it calls azad kashmir from gilgit baltistan and treated them as separate places uh india now has separated Kashmir from Ladakh and treats them as separate places. The entire state has been dismantled. And, you know, people will argue, I don't take a clear position on this, people will argue uh, whether Jammu and Kashmir was an artificial state in the first place. As, <coughs> as you know, it was created in 1846. Um, you you can make a case that it, it should never have been created in the way it was. Uh, uh, but I also, uh, I think I've mentioned in one of my books, I mean, 1846, I mean, if you look at Belgium or Italy, they were both created in the 19th century. We don't go around saying they've got to be divided up. Uh, so I have always deliberately tried to talk about the entirety of the princely state because to some extent that is also a way of acknowledging that there is at least a theoretical entity there that remains disputed but i don't think that's the case anymore the whole thing has been um dismantled and i don't see any way that you could put uh jammu and kashmir in its entirety back together again okay. so when people talk about independence for kashmir then i I don't think you can say they're any longer talking about. I don't know whether this is, I, don't, I doubt it's ever been thought through, but when people talk about independence, they used to be talking about independence for the entirety of, of Jammu and Kashmir. Now if you'd be talking about independence for the Kashmir Valley, and it's, 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 there's no way the Kashmir Valley could survive on its own. So it's become a whole, it, it's become a whole absurdity. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out and ask you this question, which probably many Kashmiris would ask themselves. Would, would the people of Kashmir or the, the, the people of the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir, um, would they have a better case for whatever they would want, you know, uh, apart from the discrepancies over there, had the gun or violence not um, been introduced? into the valley are you talking about 47 48 or are you talking about or both mm. both the 90s i would say but 47 of course there the kashmiris were probably um less uh less culpable uh, um, right. um but in terms of in terms of recent contemporary history would the kashmiris have made a better case for themselves um had they not you know taken up kalashnikovs um i mean it certainly didn't help it meant that which is dreadful because kashmiris uh, in the valley suffered through all those terrible years of violence and not only got nothing but probably had had a weaker case uh I guess then the question you would have to ask and then you're dealing with a lot of counterfactuals here had there been no violence uh what what would have happened uh and i suppose the only possible shred of evidence i could point to is 
at a time of violence being relatively low, in other words, between 2003-2007, then there was an attempt to have not independence for the whole of Jammu and Kashmir, but certainly greater autonomy. And so I I think probably fair to say the less violence there is, well, yes, the less violence there is, the more space there is for imaginative diplomatic and political solutions. I think that's very. Do you think now that, because China has always been an party to the Kashmir conflict to a reasonable lesser degree, um, today with China's you know growing influence not only in the region but also on the world stage, and then you mentioned in the beginning uh, the CPAC, um, will it become a much, much bigger party uh, into in, into this conflict, uh, and especially on in terms of Ladakh and Gilgit-Baltistan? That depends uh, on... Uh, I mean, it's always tried to keep a bit of a hands-off thing in terms of the actual internal disputes uh, on in the Kashmir Valley and so on. And actually, interestingly, until relatively recently, it's um, it's never quite given Pakistan that much support on these things. Um, <coughs> and um, It has blocked quite some designations of, um, of, of terrorists at the UN who were Kashmir. Yeah, no, that, yes, no, that's absolutely fair. But on, this, on the other hand, whenever there's been a crisis, for example, during the 1999 Kargil War, um, or even during the uh, 2001-2002 military standoff between India and Pakistan, China's role has tended to be to cool things down, uh, which is not surprising given that it obviously doesn't want a war on its on its western um, southwestern western border between India and Pakistan, which would be very damaging for China too. Uh, so historically, I think it's it's actually not been. Uh, I mean, I think historically it's been a destructive player in the sense that it has provided cover for Pakistan to become a uh, provided cover for Pakistan to, to to run its jihadis and use its nuclear weapons as a shield against retaliation. I don't think what China has done for Pakistan has done Pakistan any favors, uh, uh, or hasn't certainly hasn't done the people of Pakistan any favors because they would be much better off with a healthy functioning economy. Um, but I, so I guess you have to balance the two things out. I mean, China, yeah, I think it's been damaging strategically, but I think in terms of the domestic turbulence, it's been quite hands off. Uh, I don't know how that's going to change. Um, with the growing tensions between the US and China on one hand. Um, and also on this, something we we don't know yet really is because uh, there have been rising tensions on the line of actual control between India and China. Um, I don't know how that plays out if, if India and China ever, I mean, the, the, they've had obviously clashes on the line of actual control. Um, serious clashes on the line of actual control, if that escalates into a greater level of fighting, um, how that all plays out is, 
I mean, I really don't know because does 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 the US then come in and help India at risk of 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 then making it even more inflammatory? Uh, does China then use its presence in Pakistan um, or its it's uh, yeah it's it's yeah it's got a presence in Pakistan uh, through CPAC through CPAC and through developing projects? Does that does China use its presence in Pakistan to put pressure on India and I would say there are so many variables there that you'd have to work out that I, I would say that I think the, the strongest word is unpredictable. And given that we're dealing with, uh, well, in fact, four nuclear armed powers, if you bring in the United States, you've got India, Pakistan, China and the United States now, then that's certainly extremely worrying that it's so unpredictable. And therefore kind of reversing back we do need to find ways of bringing down the temperature and finding imaginative diplomatic solutions that allow people to um to get on with their lives myra coming a bit to the end of this very interesting interview i have two questions which are which are again um uh, consequent to to whatever we have discussed you, you talk about bringing down the temperature um one, you've also said that you feel the, the Kashmir, not the Kashmir issue, but Kashmir or Jammu and Kashmir as it was, as it does not exist anymore. Um, and then in the beginning, you've also talked about a lot of jihadis who wanted to go to Kashmir to fight. Now, so the, one of a question which, which comes to my mind, what will happen to these jihadis now that Kashmir or Jammu and Kashmir does not exist anymore? Uh, also, especially with the government next door in the, in the shape of Taliban, um, because it's it's much more you know as Obama said it, 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 the the issues here re require a regional approach. Well, Afghanistan is also one of uh, one of the issues in the region. So, with all these jihadis um, in Pakistan, but also now in Afghanistan, um, what will happen to them? Well, I mean, that again, I mean, in an ideal world, uh, Pakistan would have a growing and healthy economy. And at least some of those young men who are drawn to, towards the jihadi cause, I'm not saying all of them, they're not all hardened jihadis. I mean, the, some of them are just young men who, uh, who, who get drawn to them for want of any other opportunities. Uh, so some of them with a healthy functioning economy in, 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 in Pakistan would, would get drawn away. Uh, some of them are getting old because this has been running for a long time. Um, I don't know how old the likes of Hafiz Saeed is, but uh, must be well into his, maybe even to his 70s by now. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and obviously the, some of them are going to join the, um, the Pakistani Taliban um, who are increasingly attacking the Pakistani state. And... Uh, and this has always been the frustration of saying, of people saying again and again to the, the Pakistan Army and Intelligence Service, you've got to get rein these guys in and get them under control because they are a threat to Pakistan. And Pakistan has tried to play it, you know, and tried to give, you know, it's like a balloon they try and give with, give, you know, try and squeeze it a little bit and it comes out somewhere else. Uh, 
they have never done what they need to do, which is actually uh, repudiate the ideology that allows these jihadis to flourish. They they need to bite the bullet and get rid of it once and for all, but I don't think they will, and I'm, I suspect they don't know how to because, like I said, if they crack down on one side, then they have them erupted somewhere else, and 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 I, yeah, I I I, I think it's just you're just going to see them joining, whether they join the Pakistani Taliban, whether they get drawn into other groups like Islamic State in Afghanistan. Uh, it seems that this problem will simply continue. Uh, would you, would you I, in, in your eyes, would you see another um, Mumbai or another, um, you know, flare up of violence uh, in, in, in Kashmir? Do you see that happening? Uh, you know, I, I was discussing this with somebody recently and I, you know, on one hand you could say no because the Pakistan army currently is very preoccupied with what's happening on the Afghan border and uh, and uh, with the problems with the Pakistani Taliban in northwest Pakistan. But I would also say when I look back historically I don't think we have seen previous crises coming uh, I don't whether I look at the Kargil war which caught India completely by surprise uh, the Mumbai attacks caught India by surprise the parliament attack uh, caught India by surprise now India has got better slightly better at uh, it's it's intelligence and, and managing these things but and it's i'm guessing got more help now from from the americans um and other western western countries in terms of intelligence but i think i guess what we should say is historically we have not seen these things coming so nobody should say well we're not going to get another one because the the only thing you can say predictably is that we've, we will be surprised. Uh, and because of that, uh, it's again important. I don't care whether India and Pakistan talk. I don't think they need to talk in public. That tends to be counterproductive. I do think they should be talking in private uh, because you need some kind of cushion and we, 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 cushion that, that some kind of enough lines of communication open that when we are next caught by surprise then there is a, a means of, of dealing with it and I, as far obviously i don't know if there are secret talks going on right now i don't think there there is much in the way of back channel talks at the moment so i would say it's quite a brittle situation uh don't see you don't see uh 2003 2007 that period coming back in the foreseeable future uh, I mean, there's, what is there to settle? I mean, it's, uh, you know, 2003 to 2007 was an attempt to settle the conflict over the former princely state of Jammu and Kashmir. If the former princely state of Jammu and Kashmir no longer exists, then... Um, then well, according to both, like for, for India, given Baltistan is still something which needs to be settled. And for the Pakistanis, the Kashmir Valley is also still something which needs to be settled, despite their different viewpoints on it. 
but this is their this is what what both countries still deeply think uh yeah i mean but i mean they haven't you know they, they have no locus standi anymore i mean it was always true i i think you know india has the indian government has said that it's disaggregating jammu and kashmir when it when it separated ladakh from from the kashmir valley it's only a best legitimate argument to say it had a say in gilgit baltistan was because gilgit baltistan was part of the former princely state of jammu and kashmir um and because india claims the former princely state in its entirety then it had a say over over gilgit baltistan given it has effectively dismantled the indian side of jammu and kashmir then on what basis does india have a say in gilgit baltistan it doesn't to my mind anymore um and uh so i mean you can envisage some kind of maybe some kind of draft agreement where they do accept uh you know in an I- ideal world they do make the line of control irrelevant and they accept no exchange of territory uh i perhaps one comparison is maybe france and germany immediately after world war 2 um where people actually bury their differences historical differences in the interests of trade and free movement uh but that is not actually a solution to the kashmir conflict that is simply saying okay we now agree that each that the parts the different parts of jammu and kashmir belong either to india or pakistan and at a broader level india and pakistan are going to try and ease tensions along their 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 border um but i mean i guess you just need to look even at uh the extent to which germany believed that making itself economically dependent on russia and opening up trade with russia was going to prevent a war and that hasn't worked either so you you as you said you said the indian decision to 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 separate jammu and kashmir and ladakh was mostly you know um was mostly provoked by what was happening in gilgit baltistan and mostly uh, w- with regard to china um when so strategically um when you say you know there's nothing to settle anymore you don't see 2003 2007 anymore uh, happening anymore so i come then to my last question do you see a war <laughs> uh i mean or at least at least let's let's not call it a war but uh, uh, you know some other conflict erupting with the chinese you know assertiveness in the region also on the line of actual control also in gilgit baltistan their problems in xinjiang they're cozying up with the taliban all this together and of course uh, with the us do, do you see a conflict um Well what I would certainly say is that uh and coming back to my original point about how the inf- the periphery influences the center as much as the center influences the periphery uh you have soldiers on a knife edge all along the line of control and soldiers edges about that metaphor but 
soldiers uh, confronting each other, soldiers confronting each other across the line of actual control. Um, to know what is going on there because I how much work I put into it on the sketch and more. It is. It is, there is always a risk of a local flare up between uh, soldiers in a remote location that may not have been authorized or directed by the center or may not, have, may not follow the intentions of the center. You get a flare up of, 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 of fighting as we saw a couple of years ago on the line of actual control in the Galwan Valley. You get a big flare-up of tension between soldiers at, at a local level that in turn then affects the way the centre has to respond diplomatically. So it, 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 it may well be that, I mean, that's as long as you've got soldiers on front lines like that, you're always going to have, like as you said, with wars, there's always a risk of something going wrong. So even if every single capital city says, look, we don't want a war, uh, they're not in charge of every single footstep of soldiers sort of thousands of miles away in, in, in remote high mountain conditions where even the soldiers themselves aren't always clear about what's going on. So again, in order to move towards a 2003-2007 situation and not, not fully in, in that context, but to move towards engagement, talks, back-channel diplomacy, the first thing would be demilitarization. Um, of, of, of these areas? Uh, yes, but again, that seems unlikely because, uh, I mean, on the line of actual control, we're actually militarization. It was a fairly, uh, line of actual control was, was peaceful for decades. And now you see, uh, well, India saying, China encroaching on what India considers its territory and India moving more and more troops forward um, to stop any further Chinese encroachment. Uh, the same on the line of line of control. Uh, you know, uh, after Pakistan initiated the Kargil War in 1999, India is is not going to pull its troops back and demilitarize because the minute you leave a gap, any kind of gap on these these in these yeah. these. Uh, these lines, then, then it's some, the other side's going to exploit it. So we actually seem to be seeing increasing militarization rather than demilitarization. Uh, I guess the only thing, because you, you want to, um, uh, well, I'm not sure it's a positive note to end on, but I, I, I guess I would just appeal to everyone to know that they're playing with fire and that, uh, we that the best we can do as as individuals or as 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 or diplomats or politicians is to try and bring the temperature down because it's in bringing the temperature down you find the space for imaginative solutions and certainly i would say 2003 to 2007 was an act of of imagination um i would never rule out the possibility of other imaginative solutions but but i i would say that all of us have an you know, whatever we can do is dial down the outrage, dial down the rhetoric, and uh, and try and do our best to keep things calm. Well, Myra, uh, thank you very much for this for this very interesting interview, and I think it has 
probably raised more questions um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> than it has answered. But but that's good because then um, maybe we can, um, in a while, when there is some stroke of imagination or there is something which which looks towards that, uh, we can we can do this again and 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 talk about um, much more of this. I, I found it very interesting when you mentioned, of course. The, the the Americans in this conflict. You know, I haven't heard that often, uh, but when you talk about this conflict to this region, you talk about three nuclear powers and you talked about four. So that's very yeah. interesting. Um, that is something maybe we could talk about uh, uh, next time. Um, but um, thank you very much for this interview. And uh, yeah, again, let's let's do this again soon. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye.